Champions of Psychology is meant as education and entertainment. It is not a substitute for medical advice or professional counseling. Discussion of mental health topics will be primarily rooted in research and the personal experiences and self-disclosures of the hosts. While we can provide generalized education and possible mental health resources, we cannot offer any recommendations, advice, or opinions for any specific persons, cases, or situations. We provide these resources and links at our sole discretion, but have not necessarily vetted or reviewed any resource. We assume no liability for the use of the information or resources on these sites, and we encourage you to use your own best judgment. Hello, and welcome to Champions of Psychology, a show with the goal of openly talking about mental health and gaming presented by Codename Entertainment and TakeThis.org. Every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time here on Twitch.tv slash Games, or later on your favorite podcast service, Mitra Jordan and Rafael Bukamazzo, a.k.a. Dr. B, talk about mental health and how gaming affects us. If you're this live in the chat, you can leave a question that I, Trevor Bettis, will ask them later in the show. And uh, before, we, uh, before we get into all that, uh, who are you two for the fine folks who may not know? I'm Mitra Jordan. I um, am a clinical therapist in private practice in Victoria, BC. I also have a frog in my throat. So if I do a <clears throat> don't think that it means anything and I'm not teasing my wonderful compatriots here. So <clears throat> yeah, getting over a thing. So that's me. I just liked the idea that uh, you're like, yeah, don't, don't worry about that. And at some point, like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's entirely possible. It will be left up to uh, a viewer interpretation. <laughs> Concerning way to start the show, I admit. But what can we do? We're here now. <laughs> well, uh, hi, everybody. I'm, I'm Rafael Bocamazzo, better known as the Dr. B or just Dr. B for long Italian name reasons. Uh, I am a clinical psychologist in Washington State in the United States, and I'm the clinical director at TakeThis.org, which was at the time the very first mental health nonprofit to serve the game community. And I am so excited to be here today to listen to a true <clears throat> expert on a topic like this. Um, and just really, because uh, one of the one of the things that people don't necessarily realize is that while all of us who are licensed in mental health, at least in the United States and Canada, we have a certain level, um, a, a certain level of knowledge about a lot of different things, but true expertise is a little bit more rare. And Mitra is an, a true, true expert on multiculturalism and uh the effects therein and i i'm i'm i love love getting to listen to her talk oh wow well after that glowing introduction i feel i cannot possibly live up to it but i will do my best here today i am actually really passionate about this topic um there are several members of my family who are three-time migrants i'm one of them um, we've lived in various different parts of the world at various different points in our life and um, sometimes uh, people who have this experience of multiple migration or multiple movement uh, across different continents are known as third culture kids. And what this means is that there's the culture of your passport country or um, the country that your family, the cultural environment that your family most closely 
um, connects themselves to. And then there's perhaps the various places you live. Um, so life in the home is kind of one culture or it might be two cultures, depending on whether your two parents are from different places and had different experiences growing up. Um, so the home culture is one space and then wherever it is you're living at the time becomes another space um, and a different kind of culture. Um, in third culture kid terms, this means that your home space is kind of an interstitial space which kind of always leads me to feel like it's kind of an interstellar little rocket ship with its own little world. And then there's the world outside of that. And the experience of kind of dealing with both these places um, affects your sense of identity and your um, understanding of where you might fit in the world. Um, so I am going to ramble about this, but there's a reason we started talking about this. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I want to, I, I'm going to say that part of my interest in this comes from very personal, selfish reasons. Um, you know, we've now made this joke for 48 episodes that I'm Dr. B for long Italian name reasons. I know the members of my family that came over from Italy. Um, there used to be a large centralized Italian population in Seattle, and there's a whole history behind that. Um, I knew my immigrant grandparents. And there are interesting effects going down the generations, given that I'm only second generation here in America. Um, and I, obviously my perspective is very different than my Italian grandparents, especially given the context of the time at which they immigrated. And I'm, I'm, there's differences between me and some of my very, very waspy friends. <laughs> growing up in terms of our like childhood experiences and cultural touchstones. Um, but to me, they were normal. I don't have the same connection. And I'm, I'm fascinated to hear, hear more about this. And I'm interested in it because it is an important and interesting topic. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I, I certainly think so. Um, I think that a lot of people, um, when we live in a place, it's easy to see that we all kind of have a life there, right? We all have a certain level of belonging with wherever we live, determined by um, how we engage with the world. We have jobs, we have school, we have kids, we have, you know, all of that. But the in, our own internal understanding of that is going to change based on how long we've been doing this thing. Um, to really feel like you're part of a culture especially if you come from one that's quite different, can take up to 10 years. Now, to live in a culture and function in one, if you've moved countries, is actually pretty speedy. And the more you move countries, the better you get at figuring out where the grocery stores are and where you can get the food you miss from home and who you're supposed to be in contact with to get your kids in school, whatever, right? Many of these things, if you do move frequently, as some people do, if they're military kids, there's a base that usually goes with them. And so there's a familiarity that stays with their lives. If you're working internationally, there's international schools. So there's usually systems set up for those kinds of migrants or those kinds of uh, people whose work moves them around the globe, say every three or four years. And that's a very specific kind of experience compared to someone who has a longstanding relationship with place and family and geography and language, and then moves to a completely new place. 
And those of us who've been living in one place for a long time usually relate to that person based on the cultural context that we're familiar with. So if you're Canadian or you're American, you're coming from that American cultural context that you share and that they share as well. What you're not necessarily noticing is the other context that they bring with them. So there's cultural translation going on that they are having to do a lot of the time that someone from a majority culture who's lived in a place all their lives doesn't have to do that extra step. It's like if you spoke a different language, there's a period where the language of your, what's often called a mother tongue or the language of your birth, say, isn't the language spoken where you're living. So <clears throat> say I was um, Swedish, which, you know, we look at me and we probably have a sense that I'm not raised in Sweden. But anyway, supposing Swedish was my first language, I've now come to live in Canada. Um, I'm learning English, maybe I speak some English, but English probably isn't intuitive in my head yet, unless I also spoke it from birth, which is possible. But say I didn't, then I was going to have to translate from Swedish to English in my head, right? <clears throat> in order to be understood, in order to understand what's going on around me. And so that process takes place in all kinds of different ways. For example, I have a friend who grew up in the Netherlands and described herself as a Dutch parent. We met when we were having our first children and her experience of being a child was of course not a Canadian context. And her experience was of having parents who were also raised in a Dutch context. To complicate matters, she actually did live in several other places in the world. But anyway, she saw herself as a parent operating in a Dutch context in Canada. But she hadn't figured that out yet. So sometimes the choices she would make in terms of raising her kids or the comments she would make about how infants should be treated, people would look at her like, oh. And she didn't really understand what that was about initially, because that wasn't the context she, she was expecting a context where, of course, don't we all do this, right? And so we write this large across our lives in terms of how I expect things to work, how I expect school to work, how I expect finding a job to work, who I expect to be in contact with, um, how I make friends, who I bring home, um, how I meet and date and all of that. And so... Um, those things might be very different depending on the culture you're from. So I grew up, for instance, I was born in England. I lived in Pakistan. I was in Iran just before the revolution. Um, I went through part of my childhood in Pakistan, part of it in Canada, and then again in Pakistan for my teen years. And you don't date. You, you go to dances and stuff, but you really don't date. Um, you know, it would be pretty risque to hold hands with a boy. <laughs> so, Scandal. Or, right, actually, it would be a problem. So uh, it's not that people didn't occasionally do this and they were kind of found, you know, out. But, uh, but you really didn't kind of have relationships of that sort. In fact, um, when we were in grade 10, one of my friends uh, became engaged and was married off before she was in grade 11. Yeah, so of course... You can see how 
different that would be than living in a Canadian context. And I didn't expect that that would be my reality, relationally speaking, but I also didn't know how to proceed in a Canadian context in terms of meeting people um, or what even my family's expectation would be. So just laying this out there so that the next time you sort of chat to someone and you know that they actually were raised in a different context, it's good to not make assumptions about um, their experiences within that context or what they expect for themselves in a North American context. Mm-hmm. So. Well, so uh, what, one of the things that fascinates me and I, my recollection of our, of our, as we were planning this season out mm-hmm. is the idea that there are in fact, very different effects and very different experiences of people depending on like what generation they are in terms of coming to another culture. Um, Obviously the experience of the immigrant generation, like I I mentioned my grandparents, you know, my grandparents showed up in the United States in the 1920s where Italian xenophobia was at its height. And that's a very different experience than their kids versus their grandkids. Absolutely. So like, are there any consistencies as we think about the immigration generation, the first generation in a country, the second generation in the country. Yeah, so let's talk through some of that because I appreciate being brought back on track. I can ramble about this stuff a lot. Okay, so the immigrant generation, say you haven't, the most common experience might be that you come to a new country, you settle in, there's usually a relative or two there, you hope, but sometimes um, the experience might be through, um, uh, you might have to leave your country. You might not actually be a refugee, but the circumstances might be such that you, there's really no, it doesn't feel like there's an option or that there's enough there for you. Um, so when you come to a new place in, in that context where you, you aren't coming from a very moneyed place, you're going to have to really kind of work to make it work, right? Maybe you need English lessons and you can get, you know, sort of ESL classes, but you're probably going to have to work, take any job that you can get. And this is actually the first hurdle um, for an immigrant. It might be that they actually might have um, quite a good white collar job, say, in their home country, Um, But we don't tend to realize as the average non-immigrant or non-first generation or immigrant generation. So immigrant generation refers to the first group coming in that come in often as adults. Immigrant or first generation refers to their children born as, say, Canadians or Americans, but with parents who have a very different life context in terms of their own development okay so and then of course you have second generation after that which yeah exactly dr b is um and chances are trevor your parents did come from somewhere else but it was far enough back that there might be some family stories about it but that's probably yeah okay there's not a lot (laughs) there's not a lot okay so i I had to do a lot of the digging myself (laughs) yeah what's what's the name of your other podcast (laughs) that's a different one (laughs) that's even more digging check out from the same mister for more on that (laughs) 
Okay, so so the so people who come in as as immigrants and they're kind of trying to find their way in the culture um, are often really struggling. They've sacrificed a good deal to leave, and their aim is to really make things better for their children. You know, most often that's the case. Now you will sometimes have an immigrant coming in to say marry or be with a first generation person. And that leads to some interesting family dynamics, which we will not get into now. Do you see how easy it is for me to get distracted? (laughs) So even as you're talking, Mitra, I'm I'm thinking about some differences here. Like Mm -hmm. when my grandparents came, when my grandparents came, uh, my paternal grandparents came to this country, um, my grandmother was the educated one. She had an eighth grade education. My grandfather, I think, had a fifth grade education. And that, that contrasts with a dear friend of mine whose mother came to this country from uh, to the United States from Mexico. And um, she was a practicing dentist in mm-hmm. Mexico. Here, she runs yeah. a daycare center because yeah. she can't transfer her, what was at the time, pretty lucrative career over to the United States. I mean that yeah. that was a that was a pretty terrible running joke in like 90s sitcoms and stuff where it's like the taxi driver was like, "Oh yeah, I was a nuclear physicist back home and now I'm that." And and I remember being as I'm like that seems like an issue. <laughs> it's a it's a massive issue and it's also a very insulting because often when people come in yeah. as immigrants, they're actually their white collar professions are regarded as an asset in even the immigration documents. So you get this idea that you probably will be able to have the work that you were doing before, and that's not the case. And because the the barriers to those, the barrier to entry for those professional um, positions, those designations, even after training, the walls for that are very, very high. So it's actually very difficult to to do those jobs. It's not impossible, but it's very costly and time consuming. So if you come in, say, as a dentist, but you need to find work right now, you know, you've got maybe little kids or or you've got, you know, rent is super high in a lot of places. You know, it's all these factors Mm -hmm. that make it difficult to just go, okay, I'm going to spend the two or 3,000 or 5,000 or 10,000, however many, however much money it's going to take for either the credit, the additional training for the, Mm -hmm. if there's bar exams or board exams or some kind of process to get that designation, it's out of reach for those people. Whereas it's often built into the training process. Um, If you're Canadian or North American or from the UK, it's built into the training process so that you're acquiring the hours that you need, right? the references that you need, and the work experience that you need in order to put those in place. And meanwhile, the work experience you had isn't acknowledged here. Um, there was, in fact, a German physiotherapist who worked very high up in both physiotherapy and in trauma work, who was never able to get back to doing physiotherapy in Canada. And these are people we really need. There was an Ethiopian doctor who ended up as a hospital orderly. When there was a power outage, he was the only person who knew how to manually blood type. So at that point, they used him to do that. And then he was right back to being an orderly the next day. And that's how people are treated. So it's, it's profoundly disappointing 
for the immigrant generation. And if we wonder why, you know, we talk about tiger moms or there's all these jokes about immigrant parents who are really tough on their kids. This is why. These people have lost everything. Yeah, their hopes are pinned on you because you can have the future they couldn't. And this is of course very difficult for the first generation because their home context is one culture and the context outside of the home has a, it's a very different culture with very different expectations. Well, that, um, that's something that we hear that we talked about the the idea of this struggle because I mean there's different um, there's different experiences of an acculturation process and there's different stages there's different perspectives there's different uh, there's different approaches and um, one of the things that I have not I, I heard from my father that uh, Amy Tan the author of the Joy Luck Club did a fantastic essay on uh, language school going to, I believe it was Cantonese language school as a child. Um, there is this real internal struggle from the first generation of, do I reject dominant culture? Do I reject my parents' culture and assimilate into the dominant culture? Do I somehow create a synthesis of both? And that's a, a really common struggle. I, I heard from my father, um, the few uncles I talk to, because the Bokamatsu men don't age. We just drop dead. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. But the, it, this is a common struggle. I've heard from, you know, my dad, my uncles, um, my friends who are the, you know, growing up in Seattle, which is very, and, and I grew up in, in a somewhat multicultural area. This is something I heard from a lot of my friends I grew up with. Is that common? It really is. And it applies in conscious and unconscious ways. So for example, um, uh, as a woman who was raised in a South Asian context, who watched friends of my generation marry very young, um, it's not that I had any expectation that I was going to marry young or, or even you know have a ton of children or any of that. It's just that as time went on, and um, I didn't immediately find my life partner or get married or any of that, there was this sense that I was doing it wrong, okay? And then when I had my first child, um, family, immediate family was very far away. But in a South Asian context, when you have your first child, a lot of family comes around. You actually get to rest because there's always someone to carry your baby around. You know, there's always a lot of support at that those points. And, um, it was the opposite because not only was I alone with this with this um, infant much of the day because my husband was having to work, but also um, my mother-in-law was getting very sick and my grandfather was close to death. So family was going through its own crises. And I remember really grieving through that. Not that I had before consciously thought, oh, I expect everyone to be around. It's just that when you grow up in certain contexts where certain things just automatically happen, it's like you take them for granted. And then when they don't, that's when you really feel their absence. So, so those are the kinds of, um, when my friend was talking about being a Dutch parent, those are the kinds of experiences that are just felt because they've been done for generations in your family and in your cultural context, and then they don't exist. And so that's very, that's very difficult um, to go through. 
so the the implicit expectations um, that first generation kids go through with their immigrant parents that's what's really difficult because it's about the unspoken boundaries so parents may never overtly say you can't date someone outside of our culture but there's oh. so much implicit expectation about getting together with another Iranian, another South Asian, another Arabic, another whoever it is, right? Um, to marry within the, the Chinese cultural context or whatever, right? We had that um, in our family. Right. Like my, uh, there was, it was scandal because um, my, one of my now late uncles married an Irish woman mm. and her family was not happy about that at all because right mm, so um, it, and that's even the same religion no it, oh she wasn't she wasn't she was not an irish catholic uh i believe oh no i believe she was protestant oh the horror so oh, okay. i know i know and that's, our, and, and that's still someone who's christian i'm just gonna i, no, I, I mean <laughs> just for content i mean I, I two of my names are archangel names and <laughs> right i oh so, okay, so imagine it's implicit that you marry someone who's Muslim or Sikh or Hindu or, you know, Buddhist or whoever, right? Be and, and that they be from the same cultural context because they will understand us and they will keep the culture alive. So this isn't really only about we're other or being othered by people. But it may be partly related to the idea of being misunderstood and for there not to be much representation of a family's experience within the majority culture. In other words, um, it's Ramadan right now. How many people actually know that, right? So, so if you're Muslim, yeah, and, and that's wonderful. But, you know, I'm sure not, not everyone does. But if you're Muslim, this is a big deal, right? Um, you know there we just had um there's all these other celebrations which i'm not going to bother getting into because then it, that's a distraction but the point is these have profound significance within certain families um and within perhaps a somewhat broader cultural milieu if you have a relationship with your local mosque say in that instance but there is not necessarily the broader recognition the way there would be for christmas and that's fine. That's not, it's not that that's a problem. I think a lot of people who immigrate recognize that, that they're coming into a cultural context, which is different than the one in which they were raised. Um, and that's, that's just part of the deal, right? At the same time, there is a desire to perpetuate your own culture and traditions and a worry about how those won't be understood by someone coming into your families. Um, or engaging with your family. So, so, so that implicit understanding means that a lot of people who are first generation end up dating very quietly mm -hmm. and not, not, not sharing their partner with their family or <laughs> their family with their partner. And this is such a shame for them. So, you know, so, so that's, and, and there's, it built up expectations and fears around acceptance that have to do not just with a partner who's outside that cultural milieu, but also with oneself. 
Will I be fully seen? Will my partner's family understand me? Well, Will they? Hmm. Oh no, I, I I had a I had a thought. It's a it's a it's about the sort of unique othering position that first generation kids are in. And again, um, this is something I heard from my dad all the time that his parents didn't didn't sound or look like the other parents of his you know his classmates. Um, we, we see humorous examples of this in like the movie, my big fat Greek wedding, where mm. in the, in the, I, I remember watching that with my dad, because there are some cultural similarities between Greek families and Italian families. Uh, there's also some big differences, but the, uh, there's an opening scene where she is just wanting the wonder bread sandwich, as opposed to um, she's eating spanikofita yep. and the, the blonde kids are making fun of her. Yep. And I remember my dad just be like, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. that was that was my childhood. Oh, Here yeah. I am eating anchovies School and sardines. Lunches. Yeah. I wanted the Wonder Bread so badly because I just wanted to fit in. Mm. Is that a common experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's very difficult because on one hand, yeah, kids aren't really, particularly if they're in a fairly multicultural school context, um, they might feel like they have, there's a sense of belonging, but there, there, there are often challenges to, certainly there were for me in Canada at the age of 10, you speak funny, you sound pun- funny. The term Paki as a, as a racial slur was becoming very, very common. Hmm. And I didn't even understand what they were saying because I hadn't experienced that kind of discrimination before. Um, and so you know, we kind of talk about, I think someone in the comments actually mentioned um, kids not having those boundaries. Uh, And it's true, young children don't, but older children uh, might certainly experience those depending on their family context and um, a family's um, own prejudices, you know, which come up at times. And also it's difficult, even without those overt prejudices for a child to feel different. Um, When I was growing up, you know, when I was a young adult in Toronto, there was an area of uh, Toronto called Little Portugal. And this is another thing, you know, there's a lot of research and, you know, but what happens when you kind of ghettoize communities? Now, communities are drawn to each other as well, because it feels more like home. But at the same time, the ghettoizing is a huge issue in terms of people also feeling at home in other communities. Anyway, there was a massive criticism on the part of teachers and uh, around how these kids were speaking Portuguese at home. In other words, they weren't speaking English at home and the teachers, and they were often speaking Portuguese with each other on the playground. And the teachers were concerned about their picking up of English. And I think our, I our attitudes towards this have changed, thank goodness. But I think that that would be a very difficult experience as a child in that school context. You're othered right there. You're made to feel like you're not smart. You're made to feel like you don't understand when the reality is you're learning two languages at once. Which has neurological benefits, we know. That's right. And also, that's really difficult. It means you're picking up both languages a little bit slower at points because you're having to translate between them and make sense of them. But these kids were often also having to translate for their parents, you know, 
kids from other cultures with parents who don't necessarily speak the language fluently are often having to answer the phone and deal with whether the phone bill's being paid. Um, They're having to, in other words, become parentified in some contexts with their parents. Um, And they're having to translate their world or life experience with their parents. And this is incredibly frustrating for parents as well, because they have profound capacity and life experience in a different culture and not everything translates over the same way. So it leaves them feeling less than, and it puts Mm -hmm. pressure and potentially stress on their children, especially if there's financial challenges that the children become all too aware of at a young age. Yeah. Oh God, you know, my, again, these are things I, I, my dad, um, you know, my dad talking about and uh, his experiences growing up as well as the internalized racism that existed within my family to the point that like my grandparents did not speak Italian to their kids. They absolutely did not. And even like my father, my uncles all got Anglo names so they could, you know, not be seen as the dirty foreigners, quote unquote. Um, I'm the, you know, the, the grandkids were, were the first generation to get the Italian names back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my uncle worked in sales and his name also became very anglicized. Most of the men of his generation absolutely had that experience as well, because, there's nothing worse than standing there while someone struggles to pronounce your name. I've been there many, many <laughs> times. Um, because it is, this is what interferes with a sense of belonging. Yeah. Right? If, if you can't pronounce my name, I feel very much like I don't belong here. Mm-hmm. If you're asking me where I'm from and I say, Canada, you know what? Because I've lived here most of my life. But I say that and people are like, no, before. Where are you from before? wow, okay, clearly you don't think I belong here. I must belong somewhere else. What about overt racism when somebody yells, go home? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Maybe I can't go home. Maybe it never was home. Maybe I was never even brought up there. I look Middle Eastern, but the only time I visited Iran was right before the revolution. There were a couple of visits in there, but my grandmother was part of the Assyrian community. In other words, Uh, Assyrian uh, Orthodox Church. These were people who, of course, endured a genocide at the turn of the last century and had to flee their land. Interestingly enough, she ended up living in Ukraine in a place called Nikopol, a stone's throw from Odessa. Okay, maybe not a stone's throw. I don't know. Distances are vast, but you get the idea. So, yeah, so there's been a lot of movement to find a sense of home in my family. And this is, I think, true of many um, migrant experiences, particularly if there's multiple migrations. Um, there's a lot of people, for instance, who settled in Ukraine, um, from Afghanistan, no less, and of course have now been forced to migrate again. Mm-hmm. So. You know, so again, we can imagine that that's really going to change their own sense of, can I trust that I can rest here and make a home here? And that, of course, is going to um, become part of their children's experience as well. 
Um, let's take a quick break to remind our viewers and listeners of our disclaimer. Uh, remember, you can put your questions in chat about the topic that we will uh, take a look at at the end of the episode. Uh, but we will be right back. Champions of Psychology is meant as education and entertainment. It is not a substitute for medical advice or professional counseling. Discussion of mental health topics will be primarily rooted in research and the personal experiences and self-disclosures of the hosts. While we can provide generalized education and possible mental health resources, we cannot offer any recommendations, advice, or opinions for any specific persons, cases, or situations. We provide these resources and links at our sole discretion, but have not necessarily vetted or reviewed any resource. We assume no liability for the use of the information or resources on these sites, and we encourage you to use your own best judgment. Okay, so what, one of the things that I, w I wanted to, to ask, because uh, we were talking about first-generation challenges, is what about when they become parents to the second generation? Because we talked about the, the, the immigration generation uh, being parents and trying to keep the culture and everything there. What is that like for the first generation? So this is very variable depending on how much of a community, uh, a cultural community there is, how much of a strong connection that first generation have maintained with their parents. Um, and so say you um, do have a fair, fairly good connection with your parents, um, but there are maybe some challenges. Like my grandfather at one point said to me when I was about 19 or 20, he said, you're becoming Canadian. It was not a compliment to people. It was not a compliment. It was saying you are losing touch with a part of yourself. So for someone in the first generation, they might feel a tremendous amount of pressure to raise their children within a cultural context that leaves them connected to their parents and at the same time allows them to be fluent and have full capacity within the culture in which they're living. And that can be a difficult thing to pull off. And so this is why, you know, Dr. B, you were talking about parents not um, allowing their children to speak their language or not being taught. Yeah, um, my, their... my dad really wasn't taught. Right. And so then for, the th for that generation that wasn't taught, where there's also an expectation somehow of passing on the culture, can we appreciate how difficult that would be? It, it's it's something I continue. My dad is seventy five now, and I I watch him struggle with this on the you know really frequently that he wants more of a cultural touchstone, and due to the xenophobia of the time of the immigrant you know that my grandparents came over, they tamped that down so badly that he never got that cultural touchstone in the way he wanted in his adult life, mm -hmm. and um, it's. It's, it's gone. He searched for months to find the ship's manifest of the, uh, the ship where his father came over. And he's got that now. It's framed in his house. Mm -hmm. um, I still That's don't think so he found awesome. the one about my, grand, my grandmother. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But he's tried desperately to reconnect to the culture that he was never taught. Mm -hmm. And he has tried to pass it on to me. And I'm, I'm hungry for it, frankly. Um, partially out of being contrarian because I was mocked so heavily for having a difficult to pronounce name as a mm -hmm. kid. 
And, you know, at some point when I was like about 26, suddenly it was really cool to be a little different. I'm not John Smith um, or whatever common Anglo name. I've known some lovely John Smiths. Um, <laughs> but it's it's it, it's it, it was denied him and he will never yeah. have that experience. And subsequently, it wasn't taught to it, it wasn't taught in full to me either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think, you know, when we talk about that internalized racism that comes of it, um, that model of parents trying really hard to assimilate um, is, is something that a lot of people of our generation grew up with. And, and some notably didn't. I had a very good friend who lived in um, Toronto, whose family, she was the youngest of six children, and her family ran a bakery in a very Italian community um, in Toronto. And her parents barely spoke any English. The kids very much were the cultural translators, Um, but they of course spoke fluent Italian as well. One of the real difficulties that she encountered in school was um, there was, she, she had a lot of learning challenges due to dyslexia and this was never picked up on because it was assumed that the problem was this, Mm. that the Italian speaking household. Mm. Um, where, you know, obviously she's going to have trouble because, you know, again, there's this bias against um, if you speak, if you're speaking a different language at home. And so there can be um, learning challenges um, and developmental issues that are missed in these kinds of families. Um, And again, when we talk about the prior the previous cultural context in which these family, you know, an immigrant family may have experienced in their home culture, potentially say there wasn't much acknowledgement of mental health or developmental issues, right? You come to this now culture where there is, kids are getting some support in school or, or the school is actually trying to create supports because this is what I've often seen. The school's trying to create supports, but they're having a really hard time talking to these parents about it. The parents are already experiencing a bunch of stress around kind of trying to support their kids and their families in a cultural context that they're not as equipped to deal with. And the last thing they want to have to deal with is the idea that someone thinks their kid isn't okay or smart. So sometimes um, educational plans or behavioral plans in schools aren't signed off on because the parent doesn't necessarily know how to engage with the school. Children who already know their parents are struggling are hesitant to bring their own issues to these parents. Racism, bullying, these are some of the challenges that might be really missed because kids don't want to bother parents who may have two or three jobs. They're just trying to cope with raising and supporting their families. So- can we flip that for a sec? Yeah. Because I, I, I wonder, how, just kind of wondering how out loud, given the cultural context in which we, in which all mental health work is done mm-hmm. and that psychology, as we think about it is from a largely Western European um, and, you know, American and Canadian perspective, I actually wonder how many acculturation issues or, you know, missteps Huge with that are labeled as mental health challenges. Absolutely. Um, and I, and you can't help it. You, if you mislabel from the get-go, you also can't get good services. Mm-hmm. 
uh, there was actually a, a question uh, that Rivero one put in the chat a while ago that says, uh, "Question: Is there anything that uh, the cultural, the culture receiving immigrants can learn from the increasing knowledge of how to assist slash work with neurodivergent individuals better with uh, situations structured by neurotypical individuals?" So this is kind of like falling into the same thing with that of like the of it being it could possibly be a problem on two fronts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when they were looking at um, intelligence tests about 20 years ago, they were recognizing how acculturated these tests were. Oh, God, um, yeah. Bo both for, for adults, certainly also for children. Um, and, you know, there's been certainly research as well on the twice exceptional. These are kids who may have ADHD or some other uh, challenge. Exactly. But they're also gifted. And one does not cancel out the other, but one does make the other hard to see. And if I think about my middle child, it who sucks. certainly had this issue, I remember that he went to do a, a test for giftedness and he finished it really quickly. And then he ended up missing a couple of questions. So he just missed the, the gifted de designation because there were two questions he missed because of his ADHD, which had still continued at that point to go undiagnosed. So, you know, and certainly if you're then, you know, if you're from a family cultural context where people are also um, either just really um, busy surviving uh, themselves, they might have a sense of some of this because please let's give parents credit regardless of where they're from in terms of their own understanding and expertise with their kids. But it may be difficult for them to also know where do I get the support and guidance to, to make this happen. So when you talk about support and guidance, now I know in Victoria, there's, um, there's a couple of different organizations um, that support families that are new newcomers and that also support immigrants generally so that if you needed resources, you could be in contact with them. Um, and I do wonder about smaller cities. Victoria is not huge, but I, I'm sure there are several in Vancouver. There are probably several I know of in Toronto um, and, and bigger cities and, and bigger urban centers. Uh, I do wonder about smaller uh, communities and you know their own awareness in terms of what people need. Um, and where to get those resources. So, well, I'm I'm also thinking about the biases of the infrastructure, like um, for both the 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 immigrant generation as well as the first generation uh, families. That, uh, that just as as a bit of an aside, I once got into an argument with a, a geeky therapist who who um, they they took a fictional character. And they were, you know, going back and forth doing that exercise of, you know, what does this character have as a di mental health diagnosis? And they diagnosed this character with a personality disorder. And they, you know, asked me, do I agree? And I was like, no, you're taking a literal alien. And this character was a literal extraterrestrial. And you're applying a personality construct from an extremely North American perspective and specifically U.S. Canadian North American perspective. And you're saying this character has a personality disorder when you're judging by wrong cultural standards. Absolutely. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm wondering how often does that happen where it's simply a mismatch of acculturation? 
Absolutely. So, for instance, if we talk about eye gaze and indigenous cultures, right? And if you're, you know, there are many cultures, indigenous, South Asian too, where, you know, you might look down when someone's speaking to you because it's actually rude to meet someone's eye, particularly mm -hmm. if they're an elder, right? So, so obviously, if you're at school and your teacher's speaking to you and you're looking down, your teacher, if they're white or, you know, raised in a Canadian context for many generations, they might have a very different take on why you're doing that, but they don't, they aren't necessarily asking, they're just making assumptions. So I think that um, managing injustice as well is something that certainly comes up for first generation kids, especially around racism. And that's, again, a conversation that might be quite difficult to have with their families. Mm -hmm. You also have today, interestingly enough, a switch on this where you might have um, a family who's, say, Canadian, um, adopting kids from different cultures and adopting um, maybe someone who's of African origin or someone who's say Vietnamese. And you have a kid who's then raised in a very say Canadian or white cultural context, but their appearance suggests perhaps something else. And although parents may try to help support their, the, their uh, identity of origin there, but it might be very difficult to because they might not know as much about it. There might not be a rich community to draw upon. And so you have a kid who has a hybrid identity. So, and what we're often talking about with first generation kids is a hybrid identity. Whether it comes from my appearance looks like one thing, whereas my cultural experience and the, you know, my milieu is very different, or I have this family and this life at home and this is the expectation and life outside of their family. And those two are not congruent, which is exhausting. It feels mm -hmm. like being a double agent sometimes. So, yeah, yeah. Um, we are getting towards the end of the show. Um, I know that we had uh, another thing that we wanted to d uh, discuss as far as second generation went. But do we want to say that for a possible later uh, retouch on this? Because I feel like there might be more to say than just a few minutes. God, I don't know. I mean, a lot of it's my griping about the the fact that I want more of a cultural touchstone to my grandparents and their country of origin than I have. Yeah. Um, but because that was denied my father, it was denied to me in a mm. lot of respects. And it becomes it becomes much more intentional um, trying to find those cultural connections. And uh, paradoxically, I I kind you know I it's it's a strange thing I, I grew up skin tone wise being having passing privilege but as soon as as soon as people say my name or see my name it's like i i i have gotten those questions of where are you from mm -hmm. and my my response mm -hmm. is seattle yeah and what where are you where's your name from my parents yeah yeah absolutely um, yeah and um, I, I become an I become I feel a, a disconnected even as second generation I feel a little disconnection from both cultures. Yeah, and I'm obviously more American than anything I, else. Like I think voice. that's it. It's that disconnection from both cultures. Like my kids um, are technically first generation, but because I came to Canada in my teens, we sort of are a little bit of first and second generation in there as mm. well, right? And so um, my kids in some ways have passing privilege for sure. And they sound, you know, like any other, they, their accent, their voice and so on. 
but they will get questions sometimes. And sometimes they'll say, why didn't you teach us, you know, to speak Urdu? And for me, it's like, okay, Urdu is the language of Pakistan, but I didn't, I don't read it. I speak it. So therefore, I speak a little Hindi and Urdu. It comes back. If I'm in those cultural contexts, I was never fluent in it. English was my first language. I grew up speaking Urdu. I could speak some Assyrian at one point as a child. I could speak some Farsi. And when mm. people look at me, they assume, at least certainly I look Iranian enough that pretty much any Iranian who comes up to me is going to say, Farsi mitunam. And I'm going to have to say name it to them. And, um, and speak that English sucks. or bad English. That sucks. You know, it sucks because I feel like I should know this. And I think mm. this is the piece where I think first generation and second generation kids can get stuck. It's like, I feel like I should know this. I feel like I am on the boundaries, borders. I'm in that, no, yeah. that gray zone. And that's one of the real difficulties. It's like, how do I identify? The reason I wrote a thesis on it is because I was trying to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I so. just really briefly, my father went to the small dying village that my grand, my, my grandfather came from. It's got like 500 people in it right now. And it is slowly withering away. Mm -hmm. And all of the Bokamatsos emigrated. Nobody, nobody remembered them. Nobody knew them. And it, it, even though there's a street in a small town or really an alleyway named Via Bocamazzo. And, <laughs> but my father was shamed because he looked Italian. His name was Italian. He doesn't speak Italian. You're not a real Italian, right? And he was shamed for that. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing. That's the thing. It's like you can't really belong in this culture but then you don't really belong in the majority culture. So it's this feeling of, of walking in these two worlds, neither of which feel like they're actually a fit. It's very difficult. And um, I just wanna, before we close, I wanna really, really thank everybody who's watching today. I wanna thank this, the, the, all of you because your response has been, wonderful and thank you thank you for saying we should revisit this yeah i, I definitely um, think it's this is just one so close to my heart it really is and um and sometimes i don't know how this topic will be received so i'm just so thankful that it's been received the way it has i just feel like a soft melty bottle in my heart right now. <laughs> before the show i was reading i was I was reciting lines from Mitra's thesis abstract in the movie announcer voice. Yes. Oh God. That's how we prep for this episode. It's only serious stuff. In a world where the diaspora don't belong. They all, they, by definition, they don't. Oh yeah. There was also some random dude in the booth that was ha uh, heckling the movie announcer guy. Uh, yeah. And then I chimed in with, you're not making any sense. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. So we're finishing off with voices, huh? Uh, it turned this, Monty Python very quickly. This is really literally did. this is literally how the beginning of the show is. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we do got to start wrapping up here. Uh, I, I definitely think this is one that we're going to have to uh, to revisit again. But uh, before we head out, uh, where can people find the two of you on the interwebs if they would like to do so? So they can find me at or in Twitter, at Twitter. Anyway, you see how much social media I use, people. Um, or, of course, you're welcome to contact me through my website. So either that's where I am. This guy, on the other hand. 
I'm I'm just around. Um, the, uh, you can find me on pretty much all the socials at the Doctor B. That's T H E E D is in Doctor O C T O R B is in Boy. I don't know. I'm tired. Um, but it's but it it is less important that you follow me, though I appreciate that. It is more important more important that you follow Take This at Take This Org on all of the socials. You can keep up to date on all the great mental health work that we're doing. Absolutely. Uh, I do realize that we uh, didn't do the question portions of it, and that was because uh, we ran out of time. I was not about to stop Mitra talking about the... I'm not about to stop Mitra from talking about this, just period. Um, but uh, we we are going to be doing a, uh, a question recap episode at the end of the season, much like we did uh, last season. But uh, this time, I think more focused on the unanswered questions from this season. So uh, be sure to tune in for that one, because we'll probably get some of those in there. Um, but uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at the Trevor. There's an A hiding in there and anywhere the Idle Champions community is because I'm the community manager and that's where I'll be. Um, let's see. We got a rebroadcast of Bardic Inspiration coming up after this uh, Bushwhacker Weekly later in the day and I believe the rest of the uh, streaming schedule is about as it normally is for the rest of the week so be sure to tune in for that I'll be on Grill Champions this Friday so yeah. will you? Ooh. I will Will you? I will. Oh I'm excited yeah 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 um, but uh, that is going to do it for this week's episode so until next week take care of yourself Champions of Psychology is meant as education and entertainment it is not a substitute for medical advice or professional counseling. Discussion of mental health topics will be primarily rooted in research and the personal experiences and self-disclosures of the hosts. While we can provide generalized education and possible mental health resources, we cannot offer any recommendations, advice, or opinions for any specific persons, cases, or situations. We provide these resources and links at our sole discretion, but have not necessarily vetted or reviewed any resource. We assume no liability for the use of the information or resources on these sites, and we encourage you to use your own best judgment.